Hi there. Uh, welcome uh, to the Cato Institute. Thank you uh, very much for coming today. We're delighted to have Alvin Rabushka of the Hoover Institution today, the author of uh, this uh, mammoth 1,000-page uh, book, Taxation in Colonial America, uh, with us today. I'm going to uh, spend a few minutes, um, uh, five minutes or so, just talking uh, about my uh, impressions uh, of the book and uh, why, uh, why you should run out and buy a copy, uh, and then introduce Alvin, and Alvin will talk for about 40 minutes or so, and we'll be left with lots of time for questions and answers. Uh, and after, after Q&A, there's a lunch, uh, lunch up the stairs in the Winter Garden. Uh, Alvin's book is a, is a thousand pages long. He, he tells me it took him seven years to write, and when you start getting into into it, you can can realize why. It's a, the, the book is essentially a 170 year economic history of colonial America. It's sort of like a 400 page book on the tax history of America. It's a it's combined with a 200 page book on the monetary history of the United States, combined with uh, a. 300 or so pages on uh, on the political structure of the colonies and uh, of the British Parliament. So you get a heck of a lot of history uh, in going through this book, uh, both tax, taxation and, and all kinds of other uh, interesting uh, issues. There's a huge wealth of detail on taxes in here. You learn all about um, taxes that we don't have anymore uh, in the United States, uh, thankfully, poll taxes and church taxes. And you learn a lot about taxes, uh, the origins of taxes that, unfortunately, we do still have, uh, estate taxes and excise taxes. Uh, even I, I uh, learned from Alvin uh, the, the origins of uh, American income taxes um, were, were in some of the colonies. So why, why read such a big uh, book on history? Why should you run out and uh, buy this uh, uh, book? Um, I'll, I'll give you a, a quick sales pitch. Um, I mean, one reason to, to read a book like this is you learn about the origins of institutions uh, that we have uh, here today in the United States. And I'll, I'll give you one example. Uh, the United States Constitution says that all bills for raising revenue shall, shall originate in the House of Representatives. Well, Alvin uh, tells us in, in his book that, that that rule, that tax bills must originate in the lower house of the legislature, uh, goes back to uh, Henry IV in the year 1400. Um, another reason to read such a big uh, a big book on history uh, is to find out um, is to uh, provide a sort of a, 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 a reflection on some of the policies that are are currently uh, in place today. You find out essentially had you had similar sorts of policies and, and uh, responses back in the 17th century. By looking at 17th, 17th century taxation, we learn about 21st century taxation. And I'll give you five examples of that. The first thing I, I learned from the book is that Americans don't like paying taxes. Uh, eva evasion and avoidance has always been a big issue in American taxation, right back uh, to 1607 uh, uh, in, uh, in the founding of, uh, of Jamestown. Uh, another interesting thing from Alvin's book uh, is that tax hikes don't raise the amount of revenue the, gover the governments think uh, that they will raise. Uh, uh, Americans are not robots. They respond to taxes. Uh, when governments try to impose new taxes, people avoid and evade. Governments get a lot less money than they think, uh, they think they're going to. And Alvin goes through in great detail uh, the Sugar Act of 1764 and the Stamp Act of 1765. The British Treasury thought that they were going to get a certain amount of money, and they ended up getting a lot less um, th than, uh, than they planned. Uh, another thing we learn uh, is that wars, high taxes, and high debt uh, all go hand in hand, and we know that from the, the current administration. 
interestingly, uh, people who live in rural areas seem uh, to be a lot more tax resistant than people who live in cities. Uh, apparently true in the, the 17th century, as Alvin discusses, and, and I think true today. Uh, a final point uh, that, that I, th I found very interesting uh, in Alvin's book is that governments always tried to bury the cost of, uh, of uh, providing services of, of, of government uh, by uh, inventing debt and other sort of financial uh, innovations to get around having to impose direct taxes on people. Uh, Alvin discusses the, the establishment of the Bank of England in 16. 94, um, and how that opened the floodgates to uh, um, higher uh, deficit finance spending in, in Britain. Alvin says, quote, the credit revolution of 1694 allowed the government of England to live beyond its means, unquote. And uh, unfortunately, we see that uh, credit or debt revolution still going strong in Washington today. A final note I think uh, uh, Alvin uh, will will talk quite a bit about, I think, is, is how America was a tax haven back in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, it was a fiscal paradise, as Alvin uh, calls it. Uh, America was, the American colonies were the Cayman Islands uh, of the day. Uh, interestingly, the, the, uh, the American colonies had the highest standard of living in the world at the time. And so, uh, you know, I would humbly suggest that uh, low taxes and high standard of living are not uh, are not unrelated. Let me uh, introduce uh, Alvin, and, and Alvin, as I said, will talk for about, uh, about 40 minutes about his uh, book. Uh, Alvin Rabushka is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's the author of, uh, of uh, or co-author of 20 books uh, or more on taxation, fiscal policy, economic development, and all kinds of other topics. Uh, his books have included The Flat Tax, uh, probably most famously, uh, The Tax Revolt, and Hong Kong, a study in economic freedom. Um, he's published many articles in scholarly journals, and he also runs the, uh, the website RussianEconomy.org. Uh, because of Alvin's uh, flat tax that he uh, invented back in the early 1980s, the name uh, Rabushka is famous for all young uh, uh, policy wonks who come to Washington and want to learn about uh, tax reform. Uh, Alvin's uh, flat tax idea that he introduced in uh, 81, 82 uh, became the, uh, later on the foundation for uh, flat taxes proposed by uh, Dick Armey, Steve Forbes, and many other, uh, many other prominent uh, uh, politicians and policymakers. Uh, Alvin's pioneering work has also uh, was, the, was the genesis of the flat tax revolution that is still going on in, uh, in Eastern Europe. Um, La Latvia, Lithuania, Russia, and many other countries have adopted uh, low-rate flat taxes, and and, uh, and uh, those countries have uh, owe a lot to uh, the insights of uh, Alvin Rabushka. Uh, Alvin holds an, a master's and PhD in political science from Washington uh, University in St. Louis, and he has been a long, long-time Cato adjunct scholar. Uh, and with that, I'll hand over the podium to uh, Alvin. <clears throat> uh, th thank you very much. I um, remember um, when Cato was in San Francisco. I mean, that's how long my memory goes back. And then in the old building where they used to have pictures on the wall and there was one of me with the postcard, so that was also a, a very pleasant memory. Um, I want to uh, actually make a comment as I begin uh, taking a theme that's had Cato at its center, this whole business that takes place um, on unfair comp tax competition. It's largely takes place in Europe, but the United States has been part of that, that movement. And I wanted to um, maybe um, draw some comparisons between the, the colonial era and the current 
current times. Uh, exactly a month ago, I was invited to talk about the flat tax in uh, Liechtenstein, um, also in Switzerland. And I noted that the country having been invaded by the German tax authorities, having literally bribed one of the members of the largest bank to disclose the names of 1,300 German and other European tax miscreants, um, whom they're now starting to uh, sue and others have had to resign and so forth, I wondered whether or not it was actually going to be safe or I'd be kidnapped by the German authorities, taken to Dusseldorf and uh, be tortured into submission and made to denounce the flat tax. Um, it was okay, and then I went to Switzerland as well, and I was told that um, I was a little safer there, but, you know, I wouldn't want to speak too loudly um, about it either. Um, if we go back to the colonies and we look at the very end of the colonial era, the overall tax burden in the colonies was roughly on the neighborhood of 1% of national income. Numbers on national income aren't precise, but that's roughly the magnitude, less in some colonies, more in others. And in Britain, it was roughly 10% of the national income. Um, the colonies at the time of independence were almost debt-free. Britain was so heavily in debt that ultimately, by the time the Napoleonic War ended, half of its annual taxes and revenues were devoted to debt service. Um, the colonies from the very beginning of their founding in 1607 all the way up almost to the time of the revolution offered all kinds of tax incentives for individuals and other entities to come and settle, whereas um, in Britain um, it was pretty much the other way around. You were increasingly subject uh, to tax. So as um, Chris mentioned, really in many respects, um, for certainly four or five of the colonies, you could say that America had something like 30 to 40 years of real experience with what it was like to be tax havens. Now, um, outside, some of you have already bought the book, and um, I want to mention what a great opportunity this is in two respects. First, for those of you who haven't quite got your Mother's Day present, or your graduation presents, or looking for something for Father's Day, Memorial Day, Labor Day, Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, Christmas, and uh, New Year's. Um, this is a great opportunity, and let me tell you why. <clears throat> the retail price at Princeton is $60. The retail price at Borders is $60. The Amazon.com price is over $34, and you might have to pay shipping. Here it's only 33 so um, this may be a one-time offer for you to get the largest discount, and it's in keeping with the fact that even those low taxes were evaded and avoided. So um, here, this is an opportunity for you to avoid and evade a little bit of the, of the price. Now, um, I want to start with a, a couple of stories um, just to give you some indication of taxes and how they played some very peculiar roles. And the book is literally um, full of anecdotes. Um, if you have to um, explain something in one sentence, what is this book? It's basically an encyclopedic reference of colonial taxation wrapped in a whole bunch of stories about the American colonies and, and taxation. Um, is anybody in the room, I hope at least one person, has a connection anywhere to Yale University? Do we have at least? Ah, okay, good, because I want to tell you a story about Yale University. And for those of you who actually have the book, if you turn to page 222... 
you will get the story. Those of you who haven't got it, maybe it'll induce you to get the book. And um, if you look at the footnote number two, um, it goes something like this. Um, New England, as you know, was all settled with puritanical colonies. But it turned out Connecticut was a bit less puritanical than Massachusetts. And the Reverend Abraham Pearson, who ran a very puritanical colony, discovered that his Puritan legions were gradually slipping away. So to prevent that from happening, he picked up his congregation and he moved to New Jersey. And for those of you who spend any time in Newark, you will be pleased to know the city was founded as the sixth town in New Jersey as a Puritan colony. Now, I'm not sure they're still as puritanical today, but in any case, um, it turns out that the tax laws of the day required the support of the church here. Um, well, in any case, he sent his son off to Harvard to get a degree, and he got a degree in divinity. And then on his death in 1678, young Abraham got a salary of 80 pounds. That's just a ton of money when income may have been on the order of 10 pounds. Um, free fire, what an exemption from local taxes. In 1687, town residents were no longer compelled to pay taxes to support the church. So an act of the legislature in the colony repealed this compulsory church thing. Well, what's a young Abraham Pearson to do? Well, he hot-footed it back to Connecticut, settled in New Haven, and founded something called Congregational College, which became Yale University, became its first rector, and he had a salary of 50 pounds Connecticut money, which was, again, quite substantial. So for one of a tax repeal in New Jersey, Yale University was founded. Um, I ran this by Levin's son, who's an economics professor at Stanford. He'd never heard the story. Now, I've got to get more hands here. I'm going to tell you a, a sort of post-revolution tale. We have any Harvard people here? Ah, good. Okay. Well, um, as many of you know, the Hancock family, Thomas and wife, were quite successful financially. And all of Beacon Hill was his property with a big house on it, which was since relocated, and they, they reassembled one like it, I think, in Ticonderoga. But anyway, um, he didn't have any children, so they bequeathed the whole thing to John Hancock. Well, John wasn't um, a great businessman, but he was a very good politician. He had a problem with one of his ships, and that made him popular. Twice president of the Continental Congress, twice governor of the state of Massachusetts. But in an earlier um, uh, thing, how many of you were told in your years at Harvard he was treasurer of Harvard? Not too many. Well, it turns out, in came the British, so he throws the bonds which represent the endowment of Harvard into a saddleback and rides off into the distant woods, comes back so when the revolution is over, and lo and behold, the professors at Harvard, who were living tax-free, by the way, under the colonial laws, and the fellows attending tax-free, and the maintenance people tax-free, um, are eager to have salary increase other than just current tuition, so they began petitioning to get the bonds back, because the income from it would have been nice, and um, well, it turns out John doesn't give him back. Well, um, because he's governor for two terms, and by the way, he had the chutzpah or audacity to suppose that the inauguration of Washington should take place under his supervision in Boston, as opposed to, say, in New York, where I believe it took place. Anyway, um, he had to capitulate to that when Washington turned down the idea. But anyway, so... Um, so um, uh, John Hancock, as governor, had some say over the potential affairs like whether or not Harvard's salary would be tax-free, and um, he never gave it back. It turns out his wife, when the estate was settled in 1803, finally returned it. So when you buy your insurance policy from John Hancock and he tells you your money is safe, you might want to rethink that notion. 
Um, now, um, anybody trying to study um, taxation in colonial America, and I got into this project partly because virtually everyone involved with the Declaration and Constitution had served in the lower houses of their respected state assemblies and therefore would have enacted local taxes, would have experience with them, would have dealt with the British in the later stages. And so we're not talking uh, about a group of tax dummies. We're talking about people who would have enormous knowledge. And um, in the book, the tables where data exist are in pounds, shillings, and farthings. So um, 240 pence in a pound, um, 12 pence in a shilling, 20 shillings in a pound, four farthings in a pence. And there were even one piece of data where I got an eighth of a pence or half a farthing. And the reason I put the data in there is that when you read the legislative debates um, that are recorded pretty well in most of the colonies from the 1700s on and certainly the mid-1700s, they... They really suffered over every farthing in expenditure, and they really agonized over every farthing in taxes. It turned out low taxes was the key to staying in office almost indefinitely, and constituents were happy, you was happy, everybody was happy. So, um, but collecting all the data is not straightforward. For example, Benedict Arnold. Um, Benedict Arnold, as you know, um, has uh, served on both sides of the revolution, but when he ultimately um, turned coat, he became a commander of a British fleet, and so they sail into Connecticut up to the town of New London, burn the whole damn town to the ground, including all the tax and records on imports and exports, so there's no data on Connecticut. Uh, New York Public Library burned down once or twice. We lose a lot of the property tax records. Houses of Parliament burned down several times. We lose a lot of records that were stored in the Houses of um, Parliament. In Virginia, rats and water and fire burned up most of the records. Their records have, in fact, come back from the British Public Record Office um, just basically as electronic uh, copy. Um, so as you go up and down in, in North Carolina, they always move the legislature to each of three different towns. And each seating of the legislature, the records were only kept there, so there's no comprehensive compilation of the records until later. But in 1940, the Library of Congress started out with the University of North Carolina, and they went around all the states and territories, and they microfilmed everything. So there's 1,700 reels of 500 sheets of reel that can keep you off the streets for a while that provide lots and lots of data for some of the colonies. Um, in some cases, you read their handwriting and you don't. In other cases, you have some of the taxes, not all of the taxes. So um, it was an interesting exercise just to compile them all. And what happened is, having spent six and a half years, I felt the reader should suffer as I did, and putting them all together and having to, to, uh, to read them. Now, um, we all understand the pilgrims came here for religious freedom and others came here for gold. Um, and um, when you look at the constitutional foundations of the colonies, they take the form of charters and grants given either to trading companies like Virginia and Massachusetts, or they were given to uh, individuals like Lord Baltimore or uh, uh, Penn. Um, or given to a bunch of proprietors um, in South Carolina. And in each of the charters, what the crown wants is one-fifth of all the gold, silver, and other valuable ore. And the reason was is because the kings of uh, Portugal and Spain had the same agreement, and there was a lot of gold and uh, silver, of course, that was dug up in the New World. They figured there would be a lot done in the uh, North American colonies, and what they wanted to get was a good chunk of that. And other than that, there was really no concern about collecting any kinds of internal taxes. So for those of you who have the book, if, for example, you take a look at the appendix on page 64, what I try to do there is I summarize how every single 
colony, when it was initially founded, typically had two sets of tax incentives. One set was for the founding chartered company or the proprietors to have taxes exempt on them for seven years or more, and then they were had very strict limitations on what they might have to pay on things they bought from England or shipped to England, and the idea was to encourage a successful founding. Um, as well, many of the um, proprietors or companies realized that there was no money to be made once they couldn't find gold unless they could entice immigrants, and they thought they would have traders and farmers and coopersmiths and the lot. And so individuals were often given 10-year exemptions from all local taxes and tolls, and so the settlers themselves received tax exemptions. So with the exception of one colony, which is Pennsylvania, um, which is the only one not to have an exp- tax exemption in its uh, grant and charter, <clears throat> the settlers who moved into all of the other 12 had either temporary or long-term tax incentives. Um, and even in the later years, for example, when it was necessary to settle the backwoods of somewhere in Virginia or upcountry in South Carolina, they would invite people to come over, set up a community, and they'd be exempt from provincial or colonial taxes for a period of one, two, three, five, seven, or ten years. So basically the founding of the American colonies is synonymous with tax exemptions. Um, And you have to remember that um, England and later Britain has been, is, and um, continues to be embroiled in hundreds of years of continuous warfare, whether with France or with Spain, um, and then again with France and Spain, and then involving all the German powers. And so if you look at, and I try to trace the rise of the taxes imposed on Britain from literally 1066 on, so you get a feel of what 1607 was like when the Virginia colony was charted, you see the steady escalating <clears throat> mix of taxes, a steadily increase. Um, in the amount of taxes. And so what you're offering to people willing to get up and go off to the wilderness and, uh, you know, deal with whoever and whatever they found was basically 50 acres of land or more, plus exemption from taxes, um, plus the freedom of what you like. And it turns out that a lot of the proprietors used to write booklets and letters and whatever, and they'd say, come to Pennsylvania, we don't pay taxes. Or come to New Jersey, um, we don't pay taxes. Um, And so this became a very attractive proposition. And maybe the most interesting immigration statistic of all is the greater number of British citizens moved to the United States in the five years 1771 through 75 inclusive than any other five-year period, even those were the toughest five years in the relationship between mother country and colonies, almost as if by going to America and war broke out there, we're going to end up being on the side of the, of the colonists. Um, now, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about colonial ingenuity because it turns out the American colonists um, were exceptionally creative and exceptionally inventive. For example, they invented official government paper money in the West. Um, There was a bank in Sweden which issued private bank money, and the French issued playing cards, which they used in lieu of money in Canada. But Massachusetts issued the first official quasi-public government money. And it comes out of a very interesting um, story. The first set of wars that really took place, and the only time taxes became high in the colonies, were in the three periods of sustained war with the French and the Indians. And one ran from about 
1675 to 1900, and that was King Philip's War. The other was from about 1700 to 1714, and that was Queen Anne and um, Prince William's Wars. And then the next round was the last round, and that was from 1739 up through 1763 in wars with France, Spain, and the French and Indian War. And the tables all show brief bursts up in taxes in those periods and rapid run down right after those those, um, particular uh, uh, wars. Well, along about 1689 or so, the colonists in Massachusetts decide they want to put an end to the French threat once and for all. They were tired of the provincial villages being uh, burned and settlers killed and women taken off as slaves to Canada and become Indians. Um, <clears throat> and so they decided what they would do is they would engage in a military um, expedition against the Canadian forts um, in Nova Scotia. Cape Breton in particular, at Louisburg. And so they formed up an armada, and they gave bonuses to people willing to sign up. And an act of the Massachusetts legislature passed, which did the following. It basically said, look, we're going to uh, rob them. We're going to grab all their money, and when we all come back, we'll divide it up, a third to the soldiers, um, a third to the officials, and then a third for the purposes of the legislature to do what it liked. And everybody said, right on. And they went up, were soundly defeated, um, got all kinds of diseases, came back with enormous cash casualties and losses, and half the fleet sunk. Well, what to do? Because they had orphans and widows and soldiers and sailors who wanted to be paid and not nearly enough silver coin in the treasury to pay. So they came up with this great idea. Um, The British government, by law, banned the minting of coins in the colonies and the issue of official money. So they said, we're going to create a document called a Bill of Public Credit. It's not paper money, a bill of public credit. Um, And what we'll do is we'll have this set up so that um, we'll say six shillings is equal to the amount of silver in a Spanish piece of eight. Um, And I have pictures in the book here of that very first 1690 um, uh, paper money on page uh, 357 for those of you who want to have a look at it. And each one of these was hand signed. And by the way, Benjamin Franklin made a whole lot of money being the official printer of currency for Delaware and Pennsylvania and allowed him an early retirement because he got a commission on these uh, printings, which became tens and hundreds of thousands of pounds. Uh, Anyway, Well, this money was put in circulation, and being paper, immediately went to a one-third discount against silver. So a uh, a one-pound banknote was only worth 13 shillings. So Governor Phipps, who was actually born and raised in the colonies, had a private stock of uh, silver, and he tried to prop up the price, but he didn't have enough. What to do? Legislature hit upon a very clever idea. What they said is, we will accept these in lieu of taxes at a 5% bonus or premium. So if you owe one pound, one shilling, or 21 shillings, um, we will accept your tax obligations with a one-pound note. So you get a 5% premium. And lo and behold, they immediately rose to 21 shillings, as you might have guessed, um, and people instantly made them usable currency, and they became a de facto currency because they could be used to pay taxes. So, I mean, why are these worthless notes in your wallet you know, used as real money. Well, because they're legal tender. And um, for all debts, private and public, but as long as they're good for debts public, they become good for debts private. If they weren't good for debts public, they probably wouldn't be worth very much to you as debts private. Well, in any case, um, the currency notes started to spread, and a habit soon developed in Rhode Island and in Connecticut and some other colonies that issued these 
And the arrangement was we would um, vote in an expenditure of so many hundred pounds for the next year. We would issue bills of public credit in that amount. <clears throat> At the end of the year, they would be paid back in in taxes, and we'd burn them. And we'd start over again next year. So we started the system of what I would call uh, <clears throat> revenue anticipation notes and deferred financing. And it got to the point, for example, where bank notes issued in something like 1709 would have taxes collected in 1712, 1713, 1714, 1715, 1716, and you'd pay back one-fifth or so uh, due each year, and you had more and more of these taxes being deferred. Now, um, that was part of a mechanism that was not as desirable as another mechanism that turned out to be an extraordinary achievement. Um, and in fact, from 1700 on, money and taxes are so inextricably linked we went from wampum and beaver hats and bushels of corn oats and rye and nails and pails of bucket and cows, which was not a convenient way to pay taxes or, uh, you know, pounds of tobacco or rice or indigo. Um, and um, it was something called loan office or land bank notes. Now, it turned out the Crown owned all the land in Crown territories and the proprietors owned the land in proprietary areas, and they sold them off or gave them away for uh, uh, just a small fee to get people to come and settle. So you got farmers working pretty well, and um, at the Revolution, there were about 100,000 city residents, so we're talking 95% of the population are earning their living off the land, more or less. Uh, and what you said to them is, look, you bring to me um, evidence of what the value of your land is, and we will let you borrow money from the government these bills of credit, and if you, whatever you borrowed, you would have to collateralize with twice the value of your land or three times the value of your structures or some other real asset. And so they would appropriate a certain amount of money, and the idea was also that currency would fuel commerce because by law you couldn't mint coins, and sometimes the British merchants who were um, basically doing the trading business, demanded payment in silver, and except when the pirates would come to town and spend all their money, um, it was hard to get silver, you know, um, why a lot of the colonists became um, partners of the pirates, because that was a lucrative way to make a lot of money, or they financed privateers, which was a, a good way to, to make money. So um, you loan this money out, and it gets amortized over 8, 12, or 16 years. They didn't have 30-year mortgages then. Um, and you had to pay interest of 5%. Well, it turns out that within about 10 or 15 years, the interest income is sufficiently large to pay most of the cost of civil administration. Um, the British government ran this philosophy of no subsidies to the colonial enterprises. Every colony had to be done on a self-support basis, and thus the government, governor and the civil establishment was defended on depended on appropriations by the locally elected representatives who didn't want to appropriate too much money. But this was a very nice way to avoid the problem. So, for example, let me talk first about New Jersey. And uh, for those of you who want to read along, page 498. I don't have any songs in here, so we're not going to sing along. But uh, <clears throat> in the first paragraph, um, interest on loans covered the government partly between 1723 and 1732, after which it met the provincial government's expenses without any tax levies through 1751. So New Jersey didn't impose a single tax for a period of 20 years. Not a single tax in New Jersey for 20 years. 
I mean, look at New Jersey today for those of you who have lived in or live in or deal with New Jersey. Okay. Well, the governor was required by the British to actually levy taxes because they thought it was a bad idea to get the colonists uh, in the habit of not paying taxes. But pretty hard to levy taxes when there's a surplus of money. So he write back to the Lord of Trade, to 17 years since any tax was raised on the people for support of government. And uh, they wouldn't have raised any except for the fact that they were running into conflicts and having to get ready for wartime preparation. So that's New Jersey. Um, if we want to look at Rhode Island, which is an even better case, you'll find that on 478. <clears throat> Between 1716 and 1721, the colonial treasury received $10,000 Rhode Island currency and interest income. Receipts from all other sources came to 100 pounds, two shillings, three pence. During this period, no new taxes were approved by the General Assembly. In the next five years, interest income contributed 10,000 of total receipts of 11,000 Treasury. For the next four years, again. So if you run all the way up to about 1751, it turns out that explicit taxes, whether excises, trade duties, or polls and property or income, are negligible. They're virtually non-existent, and the whole colony is being financed with um, interest income. Pennsylvania, for its part, in a few choice years, collects 80% of its annual expenditures from interest income. So Benjamin Franklin called this coined land, um, and the British government was not very pleased with this idea because they wanted the colonists to pay taxes. And after a while, they started passing currency acts in 1751 and 1764 to stop the colonies from issuing currency, whether supported by deferred taxes or supported by collateralized land, um, relented ultimately in the, uh, in the 1770s. But <clears throat> they did this to um, basically ensure that there was financial stability and British merchants were going to collect payments in stable currencies um, that were equal in a fixed exchange rate to the silver and sterling. Well, m imagine having between 1720 and 1750 a third of the colonies and all of their experience in the legislature is not levying taxes. And then imagine also, except for the revolutionary period, you don't have any taxes being uh, laid on in a large amount, even though they varied enormously from colony to colony. So um, in New England, you had poll taxes, property taxes, modest excises, <clears throat> modest duties. Um, you also had income tax, and the income tax was on your business from trade, your stock in trade. There was tax uh, interest income from bonds, but the overwhelming bulk of the tax was largely on polls and property. Connecticut, it was almost entirely on property. Um, in New York, the bulk of all the taxes came from trade duties and excises. They call these regular revenues, and then extraordinary revenues raised in uh, wartime were basically income taxes, which were always dropped after the war was over. Now, the story of New Jersey is absolutely um, wonderful because it turns out New Amsterdam was an absolute total and hopeless mess. And so finally, Stuyvesant and Peg Leg is sent in to clean up the mess, and he arrives and he discovers Lower Manhattan is this pigsty of filth, muddy streets, <clears throat> drunken brawls, all kinds of bad things going on, <clears throat> Excuse me. and he needs money. And what he discovers is there's one thing all the Dutch love to do, drink. 
And it turned out then that excises on uh, liquor and beer and import duties on, um, on liquor become a very important source of revenue. Now, during the French and Indian War, Virginia and Massachusetts um, and New York were principal actors because the frontier wars with the French and Indians were along their borders. Um, it also turns out that the colonists drank like hell. First, the water wasn't all that good, so they drank a lot of beer and a lot of uh, rum and a lot of whiskey, uh, far more than we drink today. And in the case of New York, since all of it had to be imported through the port of New York, and since every member of the militia got a daily grog of rum and you could tax it as it came into the port, you see in the data a huge run-up in liquor taxes and then after the war a huge rundown. So this was the taxation of opportunity um, that they took advantage of. Now, um, let me talk also about New York in one other very clever respect, um, and it's the following. In 1702, Isaac Newton did an assay, um, and what he did was to um, take every silver and gold coin that were prominently circulating in Britain, and they took the amount of silver in a Spanish piece of eight and set that equal to 54 pence at the British standard, sterling. Now, an ounce of silver itself, then, is worth 62 pence. So you have to separate out the amount in a Spanish dollar versus the amount in an ounce. Well, uh, in 1704, Queen Anne issues a proclamation, and she says, look, our traders are having a tough time. They need to keep accounts in sterling for what they buy and sell over there, and they need to keep accounts in New English currency, New York currency, Virginia currency, Maryland currency, North Carolina, South Carolina currency, Delaware currency. It's a mess. Um, and uh, the coins weren't exactly um, milled. You know, they were just bits of metal that were weighed. So they set up this table, and then Queen Anne said the following. You can value the amount of silver in a Spanish real at basically one-third over the valuation in um, Britain. So six shillings or 72 pence instead of um, 54 and the idea here was that if you cried up, as the local term was, the value of uh, silver, it would stay in the colonies. Not that prices would adjust by one-third. That wasn't part of the thinking, and they didn't adjust overnight anyway. But colonies were very competitive, so New York said, no, we're going to value it at eight shillings, and the people in Massachusetts screamed because silver, they thought, was flowing out of Massachusetts into um, New York. So this kind of competition to depreciate the currency – really made life hell for British merchants, and so Queen Anne issued the proclamation and nobody paid any attention to it. <laughs> now, it turns out that through the entire colonial period, what you have is a little war going on in Britain called Crown or Monarchs versus Parliament. And the monarchs wanted absolute discretion and um, prerogative, and the parliament wanted absolute control. And from 1689, when William and Mary had for the first time to sign an agreement that they were subject to the rule of law and control by parliament, basically the crown continued to have discretion over the colonies. And if they had to go to parliament to get a law passed, they were worried that that would constrain the prerogative of the crown. But in this particular case, it was so bad, they went to Parliament. In 1708, an act was passed, and now you had to obey it because they would put you to jail if you violated it. And this was serious because at that time, no one thought that the colonial legislatures were on a legal par with the legislatures in Britain. The upshot is that New York paid no attention to it. Now, how did New York pay no attention to this? <clears throat> 
Okay, it wasn't easy. So if we want to read, <clears throat> this is not your typical reading from 373, I can walk you through this particular um, transaction. <clears throat> okay, so shortly after receiving a copy of the act, New York passed an act rating silver at eight shilling an ounce, saying that if they had to reduce it to six, it would have a terrible deflationary effect on the um, economy. The Privy Council disallowed the act. Now, under the constitutional arrangement, the British Crown, with the advice of the Privy Council, had a period of years varying in the colonies from one to five where they disallow an act of the local legislature. This was accepted. So the new governor <clears throat> um, reported that the legislature decided they would do it in a different way. It repealed previous legislation forbidding the clipping of standard pieces of eight. So coins that were clipped, sweated, blanched, and you took some silver out, they would legally declare those worth six shillings. And thus, they could maintain the full weight coins at eight shillings. Moreover, they levied taxes and they paid creditors in silver plate based on the silver and silver, and on lion dollars or luan dollars, the Dutch coin. Why? Because the assay and the law didn't include Dutch coins. It had to include Dutch coins. So in New York, since they had this Dutch inheritance and were used to using Dutch coins and thinking in those terms, basically evaded the act and never really was brought under, uh, under control. Now, my favorite is the Wool Act. <clears throat> and here we go to our, by the way, this is not Old Testament, New Testament type reading. We go to page um, 320. So um, Britain decides that the sheep growers in the colonies are producing good stuff at low prices. Um, I think we got somewhere up to 200,000 sheep in Rhode Island at one time. Um, the Rhode Islanders were basically commercial farmers rather than subsistence farmers. Um, and lo and behold, the colonies were producing woolen products. And under the mercantilist system, the colonies were to buy British products, not compete with British products. And so Parliament said, aha, no sale of wool. And... Um, the colonists said, we're not selling wool. We're selling things that have wool in them, but they're not wool. So they basically went to a court in Britain and won. And um, so this wasn't good. So the British Parliament passed an amendment. <clears throat> and in the amendment, they began to define wool. So for those of you who know your terminology, um, what they did was to create wool fell, mortling, shortling, worsted, bay, bay, surge, cursey, frizz, drugget, shaloon, and then we have Camlet, Casimir, Cheviot, Dorset, and Duffel, Durant, etc., and on it goes. Forty-one different kinds of woolen products were designated in the new law, and as a result, the colonists were no longer able to sell any woolen products abroad. As a general observation, the rule of law was so strictly enforced that more than half of the time, any legal disputes between any of the colonies and the mother country was usually decided in favor of the colonies. Because when you think about your... Um, tax advisor, tax consultant, and you think about the Internal Revenue Service, I believe somebody coined, I don't know the name of the three-year law, which is it always takes the IRS three years to catch up with the creative applications of tax consulting, tax lawyer, and tax advising. And so we have a similar type situation. This is a great inheritance of America. It always took the British Crown and the British Parliament a number of years to catch up with the clever machinations of, of the members of the uh, colonial legislatures. Um, now, one or two more items, and then we'll sort of break for questions, because um, 
That's a 15-week course worth of stuff in here. For those of you who need to crib lectures in a course on American taxation, this will carry you easily through a semester. Um, um, The stamp tax. Well, the stamp tax was probably the single greatest fiasco in the history of Britain's economic relations with the colonies. And I turn your attention to table 25.3 on page 754. Again, these are inducements to make sure you get your copy of the book. Um, And... What it does is it shows that the 13 colonies had consignments of 102,000 pounds, 102,050 pounds, 8 shillings, 11 and a half pence of pieces of paper, and it's broken down here by consignment in every colony. Well, we all know, and I have pictures in the book of tax agents being tarred and feathered and the like, um, and some of them were locked up, and then they had... Anyway, the story's great, but how much did they actually collect? They collected 45 pounds, and last night I think I worked out the arithmetic to 0.0025. So it was one quarter of one-tenth of one percent. Well, needless to say, it costs money to print them, to ship them, to distribute them, to defend them, to ship them back. And so in the greatest, this could be the greatest single folly in the history of mankind, collecting 45 pounds on um, 100,000 pounds worth of tax certificates. Um, in fact, to, um, to uh, pay for the, the British troops garrisoned in America after the French and Indian War, um, they did things like the Sugar Act and the Stamp Act and the uh, Townsend Duties and so forth. Um, and they were hoping to collect basically uh, 2 million pounds over 10 years or 200,000 a year, which was the cost of maintaining several divisions of British regulars. Um, and basically they collected a sixth that almost all through the Sugar Act, which was due to lowering the tax on sugar from three, shilling, from three pence to one pence per unit. Uh, anyway, the long and short of all of that is, as um, William Pitt, uh, subsequent Lord Chatham, said, for want of the attempt to collect 200,000 pounds – of which we only collected 33,000 pounds per year. We lost trade on the order of 2 million pounds a year. And the tables in the text show how trade was increasingly shifting from elsewhere in the British Empire to America. And so what became an increasingly important market was lost in an attempt to collect taxes, which they failed to tax anyway. Now, um, one of the reasons the colonists revolted, I should tell you, and while there were a host of other issues, I can put it to you this way. The total cost of civil administration in all 13 colonies was no more than 200,000 pounds a year. Thus, the very first thin edge of the wedge of Britain's first attempt, first attempt, given they had this public debt of millions of pounds, would have been a 100% tax increase in the colonies. And needless to say, this was the thin edge of the wedge. So imagine you now no longer need the British because the Indians aren't bothering you, and you don't need the British because the French have gone home. And all of a sudden, they're proposing overnight to double your tax burden with no end in sight. You might get a little uppity and concerned about uh, not not tolerating all of this. Um, Last comment I want to make is um, the stamp tax, which I was talking about in Britain. Well, you might have thought that the British would learn a little bit of history because it turns out that um, New York and Massachusetts had to go with the stamp tax. They were particularly interested in collecting some revenue as they were beginning with the French and Indian War. Um, While it officially is the Seven Years' War in Europe and it dates 17... 
1756 to 1763. In fact, it starts two years earlier in America and ends two years early in America. So the actual fighting here was 1754 to 1761. And in over three years of which one year overlapped in the middle, uh, Massachusetts and New York each had a two-year stamp tax. They enacted it. Everybody was happy. And this would go on documents. But the only people who really got caught up in this tax net are journalists. And um, I, I, I can't go into it in detail, but the famous Zenger trial, which was the first successful challenging of British restrictions on free speech and really allowed newspapers and criticism to flourish, meant that it was very unpopular to tax newspapers. So the owners of newspapers, in the midst of the biggest war in American history, succeeded in getting both of them repealed. And so um, the British obviously paid no attention. Um, I should say that between um, 1763 and 1775, there were forces in Parliament that said, this is dumb, this is really stupid, we're making enemies of our friends, we're all British. Um, Somebody should have actually proposed to move the seat of the empire from London to the colonies, and then they would have a bigger home base. But anyway, nobody evidently talked about that. And finally, the legislature got angry because they thought the subordinate legislators weren't being subordinate. King kept intervening to help the colonies. Finally, in 1774, he threw in the towel, and he said, I can't deal with these impetulant colonial upstarts. And um, as they would say, you know the rest of the story. So um, that's maybe... 30 to 50 pages of the 1,000. The other uh, 900 are equally interesting. Um, The bibliography uh, will keep you off the streets for a while. Um, And I do think, actually, and I do want to um, thank very much Chris for the way he opened this discussion, because uh, my wife keeps telling me, what's this got to do with current issues and current thoughts? Um, And it does turn out that you see a lot of analogies, a lot of metaphors, a lot of similarities, a lot of why we had a Whiskey Rebellion and a Prop 13 Rebellion and why you have uh, ballot box rebellions. It's so steeped in the 168 years preceding the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere that virtually every single person um, of any significance and those those who who voted really were property owners, um, were really um, so anti-tax through their whole experience. And even Pennsylvania in 1774, when it levied um, 60,000 pounds Pennsylvania currency to pay tax, had arrears of over 60,000. So if they just collected the so-called tax gap, which they had the record of every single person, they wouldn't have even had to levy taxes. And then, of course, in Delaware, they didn't pay any either. So you had Delaware paying no taxes. You had uh, New Jersey for parts of its history. You had New York for parts of its history and, um, and some of the other colonies. And, um, you know, um, we've lost a little of that tradition. We only avoid $300 billion out of an economy that's $13 trillion, so that's not a whole lot. Um, anyway, thank you very much. Um, do you want to moderate the questions yeah. here? And you can call off the last one. And thank you very much. <clears throat> Thanks a lot, Alvin. Uh, we, are, we are open for questions and answers okay. down in the front. Hmm. Yeah. The oh, sorry. Yeah, we, very good point. Thank you. Uh, Gene Montgomery, I'm uh, I'm thinking here that the the major issue uh, of how much the taxes are uh, relates more to whether or not somebody was at war and trying to raise money. That there was not an objection to being taxed if it were to pay for 
roads and whatever. Of course, in colonial America, governments didn't buy that much, uh, and uh, not compared to the way they do today. Uh, would that be a, a fair question here as to why? And they objected to being paying for somebody else's wars, primarily with. Um, let me answer that in two parts. Um, one part is that um, when the French and Indian War broke out, the British government found it virtually impossible to get the colonial legislatures to appropriate funds to support militias in support of the British troops. Um, and it wasn't help when Braddock was wiped out in his attempt um, in 1755 to take the western frontier against the French and Canadians. Um, so... The British government decided and they announced to the colonies that they would reimburse a substantial part of the separate war costs. And somewhere over 40 percent of all the military expenditures of the colonies were ultimately rebated by British gifts. That is, each year the parliament would vote a tranche of sterling and send that money over. So that really uh, meant that the colonists didn't have to pay the the full cost. But um, when you look at the war periods, and it varied with colonies, the three periods were the periods where you see the numbers run up and the rates run up and then go right back down. And I would say the United States was identical, you know, through 1929. Um, For those of you who have memorized your economic report of the president tables, you will know in 1929 the federal government taxed and spent 3% of GDP. States were at 7%. So the whole at 10, but still the federal government had a very limited role. There was a second very important factor also as well. There was a doctrine in the colonies called fee-for-service. That is to say, a lot of the salaries of the public officials were commercially related rather than charged to the general taxpayer. So if, for example, you went to court, you needed a will, you needed a chartered survey, you needed a, a legal document, you would pay a fixed amount of fees set by the legislature at a reasonably low rate, which covered those charges, so that I, as a taxpayer, didn't pay for your marriage license. You paid for your marriage license. And a large part of the activities were thus commercialized in the form of people who lived off fees and didn't represent any burden on the general tax revenues uh, of the colonies. And this continued all the way up to the, to the revolution. Um, you know, and uh, so it would be as if any document that was ever required or any transaction wasn't coming out of the out of the tax pot, but came specifically out of out of your pot. Uh, can we we'll work our way up down the front? Steps. Yeah. You've uh, compounded my amazement at uh, the success of uh, the Boston Tea Party, et cetera. I mean, we refused. 500,000 pounds of tea in 13 colonies uh, in days where there wasn't roads or media like there is in the the 20th or 21st centuries. How is it that the colonists were so unified that there was this absolute, you know, that we drink coffee today because we were so successful, especially when taxes were were a tenth of what they were in Britain? The the tea tax, and I have a table in here on the tea tax, and what you'll see is it doesn't collect all that much money anyway. But um, the West India Company... um, the tea company was really in trouble financially, and so they cut a deal with the British, and they said, um, look, uh, 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 you go get the monopoly of tea in the United States. We'll lower the duty. It was three pence in the pound, um, so divide three by 240. It's one and a quarter percent tax on the tea. But the um, measures that were uh, created in Britain allowed for 
the tea company to displace the entire distribution network in the United States. So all of a sudden, the wholesalers and retailers were going to be out of work. So the Tea Party was not so much a tax as it was um, a rebellion against, um, you know, the second and third lords of families that were going to come in and grab everything. You know, there was really this concern the 'er ne'er-do-wells who didn't inherit the estates in Britain were going to come over here and be put in high post and given all kinds of advantages. Uh, an opportunity, and this was a direct threat to the entire wholesale and retail distribution network that involved tea, and they could see this, and it would affect everything that would come in from cloth to to whatever. So you see at the time something new like this, and then you can only imagine that everybody else... Well, we there, there was um, a formal post office and um, done through packet ships, but um, there were committees of safety set up, you know, in most of the colonies, uh, creatures of the lower house, and they corresponded with each other. And so you ultimately had, you know, a Boston Tea Party in New York, which took place later, and you had similar else instances elsewhere in the colonies. Um, needless to say, you didn't have a um, Facebook telling me that I blew my nose, you know, at 10, and then I uh, washed my hands at, at five minutes after and, you know, put on my shirt at 15 minutes after. It wasn't that quick, but um, it was quick under the, under the circumstances. To communicate between a colony and the mother country, um, if you really got a fast boat, you might get an answer, you know, one and a half months there and back. If you had a slow boat, it would much as six months. So what would happen is a governor would write back and say, what should I do? And by the time you got an answer back, the whole thing was irrelevant anyway because the situation had changed. So the colonies could communicate much quicker and more effectively together um, through the equivalent of sort of the Colonial Pony Express, um, then could the royal governors communicate back with Britain. And then, of course, the ability of the royal governors to coordinate was a mess because um, they would have to get a unified letter copy 13 times, one for each governor to send over, which was a uniform document where you had 13 different situations also that were unfolding. So um, this was a very difficult thing for the, for the British to do, and while David McCulloch in his great book 1776 says it's a miracle we survived, there's no way the British could have sustained an empire here. Maybe it would have been later, but with Kentucky rifles in the back, would they have thrown in the towel at some point? Can I ask you this, uh, just sort of directly, on the, the cause of the revolution? I mean, it, I, I get from your book there's the fact that you know uh, the colonial taxes were far lower than British taxes, so so there was that. There, there was the fact that so there was the fear that they they would get um, English style level taxes there was there was the particular acts the stamp act sugar act etc there was i mean you but there there was these non tax things that you discussed to an extent the quartering act and and I was yeah. interested uh in you know you pointed out the Quebec act of yeah. when of 1764 right you know uh there was this threat that the colonial legislatures would be dissolved, dissolved. so the, the, there was this threat that the british parliament was getting more and more sort of dictatorial yeah. can you sort of assess that you know which was the most important well the um basically what happened is that um and it's very important to understand this is that when they repealed the um the, the Stamp Act or the Townsend Duties, and I have to go back and check which, <clears throat> the British Parliament issued something called the Declaratory Act. The Declaratory Act said, while we're repealing this, this in no way prevents the British Parliament from imposing taxes of its choosing on the American colonies. So they reserve for themselves the rights, and every time the Stamp Act or the Towns Stamp Duties, the Townsend Act was repealed, there were great joys, huzzahs, hurrahs, long live the king, you know, uh, the Parliament finally has some sense here, and uh, everything is wondrous and, and happy. So um, when we get up to 1770, um, and we get the last of these 
these things repealed, up to about 1773, things are almost a little bit quiet. But these people in Massachusetts are just unruly. <clears throat> I mean, they're really unruly and nasty and causing all kinds of trouble. And, you know, I'm sure many of you have walked the Freedom Trail, follow the red line, and uh, take a look at all of that. So um, finally, they were sick and tired of the whole thing, and they decided to suspend the charter and uh, sent over a military commander as um, governor. Um, we're getting a little tired of the legislature. Put in the Quartering Act, put in, uh, which in New York, more or less, the New Yorkers accepted it. And, of course, New York was the bastion of loyalism until the very end uh, of the Revolutionary War. Um, the people in Boston were not quite so happy and enthusiastic uh, about all these measures. And then um, they closed the port of Boston, um, and uh, this caused other, um, um, other colonies to, to take a sympathetic view. Um, and then in 1774 the British government enacted the Quebec Act, which stipulated how Quebec was to be uh, run. Governor, no legislature. Taxes imposed by decree, not by the will of the local people. And the founding charters, and I have the language of the relevant sections in all 13 founding charters in the book, showed that the citizens and denizens were to have the rights of Englishmen and there was to be no taxation without some form of representation. So what this meant was that all of a sudden, you mean, my God, these people are going to come down here, dissolve 150 years of local legislative control. They're going to get rid of the uh, taxation with some representation, rejected the idea they could be represented in Parliament, you know, across the other side of the ocean, and then had this nightmarish fear that, lo and behold, even though Protestant was, uh, England was Protestant, they'd let this Catholicism slowly creep over the country to stifle um, religious uh, 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 variety. Um, they would raise taxes um, hugely, hugely. For example, the French salt tax, which was a small part of the king's revenue, was more than all the taxes raised by the Bridges legislature. So uh, the French had an enormous fiscal advantage over the British in fighting their wars with each other. They saw all this happening, and um, they said this can't be allowed to happen. And to make matters worse, they let the French residents keep French institutions from land titles to um, Catholicism. And all of a sudden, oh my God, you know, these people are up there. And then, of course, the, uh, the land, everything on the other side of the um, Appalachians was French, so you look at the old maps of the day in the colonies, and there's this Quebec and all this other French stuff running around behind them, blocking them in on the west, blocking them in on the north, and uh, that, was, that was it. That was the last straw, the, uh, the Quartering Act. That was probably – but that was the last straw, and the uh, blockade of Boston and the uh, Quartering Act, those, in a sense – represented the sort of final firing up of all the tax, um, tax resistance. But you can see the tax resistance kicking in right away from 1764. So we had a good, you know, seven, eight years of nonstop tax anxiety building up. And as I said, imagine, you know, you were in this situation and somebody comes and says, look, um, we can't have these soldiers here anymore. Um, and besides, oh, I, I should add one more thing. In the, uh, after the French and Indian War, British members of parliament began to hear from their constituents. They have these wealthy colonists. They have nothing to fear anymore. They're making money hand over fist. They're richer than us. They're taller than us. They eat better than us. They have prettier women than us. Um, French and Indian War, the average American was one inch taller at the Revolutionary War, two inches taller than the average British soldier. So, I mean, we could look down with an extra two inches on their soldiers. Um, and, I mean, this is the result of better diet, better heat. The whole, the whole spread of things. And they said, look, why don't you get those guys 
to pay off some of our public debt, because after all, it was our debt that helped free them from the French and Indians. Well, you know, um, I should add a story here that's a great story. So in fighting the Revolutionary War, we went to France to get loans, and we got some loans. And we used them to buy British cloth to clothe our soldiers. And so the French said, what? And um, we said, look, British cloth is better than your cloth. It's more durable. It lasts longer. It's cheaper. And don't you want us to use your loans efficiently to defeat the French? <laughs> That's our history. Um, there's a gentleman there, two gentlemen there with where's – the, where's the microphone? Oh, great. Thank you. Yes, sir. I was wondering, uh, what do you think about some of the arguments that they had, um, the legitimacy of the arguments? I mean, was there a change from the 1760s to 1776 as far as the colonists' view of the authority of parliament? Did they view parliament as having the authority to enact taxes before this conflict happened? But then, because they didn't like it and they didn't like the some of the um, some of the circumstances you're talking about, they, they come up with these political theories, which are really ad hoc theories. Theories, and in in uh, you know finally getting to the point of the British Empire theory, where they say, okay, the the Parliament is the Parliament of the English people, and our colonial parliaments are the colonial parliaments. But but that was that a development? Did they did they have any precedent of a long-standing view of that, or that did that just kind of come because it was politi- politically convenient? Um, part of your answer is a long story, um, and. Um, I was going to tell it, but I don't have enough time. So on pages 100 to 104, if you read about the attempt to apply Poynings Law in Jamaica, which lost, you will see that the colonial parliaments early on thought of themselves as the equal of parliament um, and that they and they alone had the power to impose internal taxes. Now, it turns out that um, the colonists were enormous beneficiaries of the Royal Navy, British merchants, um, inexpensive shipping, capital markets, and distribution networks in Western Europe. So um, they accepted the idea that you could have regulations with very modest taxes that would go on trade, but they were really very minor and very modest. So there was something called the plantation duty that you paid if you shipped products from one colony to another before shipping them to Britain. All that money was used to do things like found the College of William and Mary. That money was never sent back to Britain. Um, So some of the various... um, uh, fees and charges and taxes uh, that were rec- involved with trade um, were basically all used internally anyway and went for – they were trivial, I mean, but worthwhile, worthwhile purposes. Um, what began to happen in the era, uh, you know, around the French and Indian War is that as Britain was beginning to get into the business of trying to – ease the burden of interest charges and also make the colonists pay for the benefits of British protection. And by the way, when you didn't have the Royal Navy and you had the pirates, the insurance premiums were triple on colonial ships going to Britain. They fell to one-third. So, I mean, that was a fair exchange to, uh, to pay for that. Um, they began to maintain this distinction between external and internal taxes. And they would say external taxes are those in support of trade, internal taxes are those we legislate ourselves, and therefore we cannot accept a stamp tax levied on internal documents that have nothing to do with trade. Okay, so that held up pretty good. Um, The Sugar Act wasn't an issue in one way or the other because they cut the duty from three pence to one pence, um, which was the customary rate of bribery, and so they didn't really think about that as a tax. 
basically for a pence and a quarter per gallon. Um, so it didn't collect any money anyway. So they originally were going to cut it um, from three to two, but ultimately cut it to one. Revenue went up. Um, and so what happened is the bribe payments that went into the tax collectors went into the British Treasury. And that was the only successful part of the external taxes. Then when you go to the Townshend duties and trade duties, external, internal, and the language begins to shift in some of the people – you know, Dickinson and some of the other writers from Maryland, from Virginia, Pennsylvania, begin to talk about – we're not seeing this distinction as clearly as we used to see from external and internal taxes. And so um, as the amounts began to rise, the um, taxes associated with trade began to be seen as a little onerous. And so the argument was shifted slowly from against taxes. Um, and one of the more interesting articles in the William and Mary Quarterly you would find is that at the end of the day, the clash was not between the king and um, colonies, but between parliaments. Um, and as you look toward the operation of the British government and the empire in the later stages, Virtually all of the naughtiness and trouble was caused by the British Parliament responding to British constituents, and the king tried to ameliorate this until finally he had to take the side of Parliament and call it his argument um, as well. So um, the British government absolutely refused to accept the doctrine that a subordinate parliament created by a charter or grant of the crown subject to the rule of law could be co-equal with uh, the mother country and the colonists took the views for 150 years. We minded our business, fought the Indians, fought the French, chopped trees down, you know, had to shoot uh, deer, beaver, whatever it was to live. And by God, you're not going to come in here and legislate in London what we're going to do. So it shifted over that period of time until finally it went from just no taxation without representation to no British taxation, period. The gentleman next to him had a question. How did the colonial authorities control inflation? Ah, okay. Well, there was a very rapid inflation in New England from its founding um, uh, in the early years, particularly after the issue of paper money, where the exchange rate went from something like one-to-one to five-to-one. And um, um, what happened at that point is they basically acted to stabilize it through legislation. Um, and it turns out that when the British government passed the Currency Act of 1761, uh, Massachusetts in 1749 um, had already issued its own Currency Act in which they took the uh, gifts and rebates from the British Parliament for their help in fighting the war of 1740 to 1748, and they used that to redeem all the paper notes outstanding, set the sterling standard back to one-third above the British standard, and um, made it illegal to accept paper currency from New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, all of which then ultimately switched to silver about 10 years later. Um, in the case of Virginia, the rate was actually overvalued, so there was no question there. In the case of Maryland, it was on par with um, Britain. Um, so the proclamation rate, which was one-third, 1.33 times sterling, was either in force. Um, and then ultimately it turned out that gold and silver and coin so poured into the colonies that um, paper money became less and less important. So um, inflation got curtailed after its initial runs by basically stabilizing the currency and switching to a species standard, and in which the issue of currency was linked to the species standard, but the supply of currency was um, only in keeping with the growth of the economy in the latter stages of the 18th century. So there was no 
Um, there was no um, Alan Greenspan or Ben Bernanke who were fueling um, the fires of inflation through excess of money creation. Um, and when you look at the colonial records, every year the audit committee of the state treasurer had to certify that a certain percentage of notes were being burned in keeping with the redeeming requirement of the issue of the notes in the first place. And then ultimately, um, I have a table in here where you can see the quantity of notes in circulation just plunges as we go pretty much to a metallic economy. Um, in some colonies, they actually didn't burn them up. Uh, didn't lose any value because they found it was really nice leaving the money circulating and collecting the interest. So New Jersey and Delaware really didn't go back to tax terribly much. Um, but inflation was a big problem. I should mention, by the way, that um, pearl, purple beads of wampum were, were worth twice the white beads of wampum. And wampum was just terrific, principal currency in New England and New York, until um, – the colonists can manufacture it as opposed to digging it up on the sands, and so that got inflated away. But as the late of the 1770s, ferry operators on the back rivers were still accepting payment in wampum. Um, and so payment would be made by barter, by book barter, by three-way barter, um, and the legislature each year would enact laws. Uh, this is the uh, shilling or pence value of a bushel of wheat, corn, rye, beans, peas, um, a cow four years old, a cow two years old, a cow one year old, horses, mares, pigs. Um, and one year there was no money to um, pay the governor, so they basically legislated animals, and he ate animals for a year, and that was his pay. Uh, and I should also mention one last thing. Um, don't believe um, – I don't want to push this too far, but um, the rule was don't believe what a politician says or writes. I think we can uh, accept that as a doctrine. <laughs> it turned out the colonial governors were the principal source of correspondence with London. And every 10 years, they'd have to write a report how many cows, how many troops, how many ships, how much trade, how much taxes. And they didn't always write a very accurate account for the reason that a lot of them were basically paid with land. So um, instead of paying Gurdon Saltonstall, the, uh, the governor of Connecticut, a salary of any significance, they gave him a few pounds, but they would give him 10,000 acres of land, you know, every other year. Um, Spotswood picked up about 80,000 acres and became a Virginia settlers. Um, up in New York, the governor and his son and family collected about 200,000 acres. So it turned out half the governors became Americans. Um, and so they tend to decide with the Americans that, oh, we don't have enough money to fight the Indians. It's hard to collect. The people are recalcitrant. Um, they're scattered everywhere. Uh, I need more of this. I need more of that. Or if he collected more than enough, he would, you know, skim some off and his gifts to the governor. And so um, when it came to violating the laws, it would say, oh, please suspend the Currency Act. We haven't got enough money for this or enough money for that. And, and um, so if you put in the context what they write, what you see is that the few who weren't really devoid of loyalists became actually agents of the lower and upper houses of the assemblies. And um, it became for this reason, finally, 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 around the 1770s, the British government figured out that they directly would pay the salaries of the governors who no longer had to bargain with the legislatures. It wasn't a lot of money, um, but they could have, for example, done this earlier. Um, way, 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 way back around the time of uh, James I and the early colonies. Um, if you looked up through the period of the early 1600s, um, uh, by the time most of the colonies were settled, they estimated that the total cost of civil administration was on the order of about 8,000 
pounds sterling. Well, that was the salary of the Lord Chief Treasurer, the Prime Minister's advisor, and our, the head of government's advisor. And so um, the British were penny-wise pound foolish because they could have freed the governors from local political pressure for a fraction of 1% of their annual appropriations. But every penny counted, even back in Britain. I don't know what time we have to break. I think but maybe we, uh, we are over. And, uh, Don, thank you very much for coming. And thank you, Alvin. Buy this book, please. Oh, uh, I don't get royalties on the first printing, so there's nothing in it for me. And they're unlikely to do another printing for a couple of years.